Welcome to The Green Docs. This is a podcast that talks about the latest in women's and family health and how that's impacted by the environment. Here are some headlines that you didn't know you need to know. In one of many environmental good news stories from 2023, the United Nations reported that the ozone hole is shrinking and will likely close within the next few decades while helping prevent further global warming. Pop the champagne, but save the bottle. Starting January 1st, 2024, California will pay you to recycle your bottles of wine and distilled spirits. And insane swimming. For the first time in over 100 years, it will no longer be crazy to swim in Paris's magical wandering waterway, the Seine. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nate. We're two OBGYNs who care about the environment and how it affects our patients. So in 2020, we published the first paper about climate change and pregnancy in a top medical journal. It had tables and everything. The day the paper came out, the New York Times wrote about our findings. And 10 hours later, Joe Biden tweeted at us. Then a bunch of other things happened. So now, like everybody else, we've got a podcast. Welcome to the Green Docs. In this episode, we're talking with Dan Scott, a master mixologist in Los Angeles, California, where he's the founder of his own craft catering company, The Whaling Club. In this role, Dan has served some of Hollywood's brightest stars. And today, he's sharing custom mocktail recipes with us. Because as you'll learn, this is not your grandfather's try January. Stay tuned for the end. We're also talking New Year's resolutions with some past guests. I'm Nate DiNicola, the environmental health expert for our national and international OBGYN societies as well as a private practice doctor and chief medical officer. And I'm Bruce Picard, an OBGYN in Southern California and a national speaker on climate and health. So, Nate, catch me up. What's been going on with you? You know, we, we had a lot of the holiday celebrations with family and friends, so a lot of occasions to go out to dinner and celebrate with some, with some beverages. And I got to say, I've had some interesting experiences trying to follow our own advice that we give here on this podcast. For example, Kendall and I were out to dinner, and uh, one of the specials of the evening was onaka fish, which is from Hawaii. And so I thought, okay, well, let's just see, is that something we should worry about in terms of mercury? Uh, have you heard of onaka fish? I have not. Yeah, I hadn't either. I mean, it's, it's apparently something that's similar to a snapper out of Hawaii. So I did a quick Google search, like there at the table, trying to find out what it is, because I had never heard of it. I got to say, it was not that simple. There isn't a list of every single fish in the universe of the ocean that will then tell you if it's high in heavy metals or high in mercury or not. So it required some some sleuthing. Finally, I was able to figure out that it was very similar to Snapper. So at least I had a reference point to go look for lists. So you know what I found as the most reliable and useful list in, in the, the whole universe of the internet? No, but this sounds very interesting. What What did you find? So I, I'm tempted to say I hate to say it, but I don't really hate to say it. I'm just, I know some people will probably not expect this answer. Wikipedia. Wikipedia had by far the best list as far as just user-friendly tables and grading the risk of different fish and their mercury content. I'm not that surprised, actually. I use Wikipedia all the time. I think it's an, a really valuable resource and... I think it's still pretty much uncontaminated with bias or, uh, you know, it's not perfect, but it has a lot of useful information. 
And I, I make a small donation at the end of the year. I just made mine yesterday for $3.10 because they were asking for about that much. You're one of those, huh? <laughs> yeah, I just feel like it's kind of a national treasure or a, a worldwide treasure to have this available. And I like being a, a small part of that community. So not surprising. You know what? I typically blow right past that part. But this experience and your comment here will make me rethink that. That may, that may be added to our list of New Year's resolutions at the very end. And just for the record, I, I did you know, fact check what was listed there on Wikipedia. And I know anybody can update it anytime, so you know it's true. They use the FDA source. There's a really good table on the FDA's website that lists every fish, nearly every fish, minus Onaka, with some notes about it and the mercury content. Wikipedia basically copied and pasted that table and made it more user-friendly. It graded it by, you know, the really dark colors are the high and heavy metal, the really light colors are the safe ones. You can tell literally where the gray zone is. Yeah, kind of a surprising resource that I, I now direct patients to. So don't keep us all waiting. What did you find out about Onaka? Is it safe or not? It's like a lot of things in pregnancy. You know, it's kind of right there in the middle. And by the way, our waiter did a, a real job trying to find out on his end also, if this was safe. He asked the chef where it came from. He asked if they had any experience. And they basically came to the same conclusion. It's similar to Snapper. Snapper is kind of in the same category as tuna, which is it's allowed in moderation. So you're looking at about one serving per week. A serving is about the size of a fist. We ordered it and enjoyed it. But the other area where I found it really hard to take our own advice was uh, when we were shopping in in the like wine and beverage stores for you know, a lot of family events, we got to bring some wine and champagne and all these things. We thought, well, what does the zero proof version of this stuff look like? And as we've shown a lot of our mocktails, there are many zero proof like spirits and zero proof options. But when it came to the wine section, a lot of them said this phrase that I hadn't really seen before called de-alcoholized. Have you come across this? I have not. Uh, when I think about more sustainable or healthy choices with wine, I look for uh, wines that are labeled organic, but I haven't seen this term. This referred to wine that's basically made like wine. Then they take the alcohol out of it in a process that I'm sure people are not going to uh, want to dive into too much called reverse osmosis. Basically, they take the alcohol out of the wine, really the ethanol, to the point where it gets typically less than 1%, even less than like half a percent. Most wine for uh, comparison is about 12% alcohol by volume, ABV. Kombucha is, I think, somewhere you know above 1%. So you'd be getting far, far less alcohol than from a, a glass of wine or even from other things you might encounter just out there in the world. But it was also pretty clear that these bottles still had some alcohol in them. And so if your goal was to, say, eliminate it completely, I, I don't think you can count the de-alcoholized as that. Kind of a personal risk assessment, but I've I've been... Finding now that I look more so for zero proof as the label, because that truly means just no alcohol involved in it whatsoever. Yeah. So how about you, Bruce? What's, what's been new with you? Well, we had a very nice uh, family Christmas up in Ventura with my sister's family and my niece and their respective gentlemen. But I've been uh, sort of fascinated lately. I'm reading a New York Times bestseller called Outlive by a physician, Peter Atia, I think is how he pronounces his name. And it has really made a substantial impact already on my eating habits as well as exercise. And I'm actually wearing a continuous glucose monitor this week, even though I'm not a diabetic, because one of the things that came out of that book that hit me strongly was that research seems to indicate 
with the rollout of these monitors uh, worldwide over the past several years so that people's response to foods is not nearly as predictable or standardized as a lot of dietary recommendations would make it seem. That you and I could eat the same meal and, and even though let's just say, for example, we were the same age and basically height and weight, we might have totally different responses in terms of our blood sugar to eating those foods. And so it's really kind of a worthwhile and a fun experiment to just be checking literally throughout the day now to see what my blood sugars are doing, because it's a whole lot more individualized than I think we have always believed. Yeah. I've been talking to my pregnant patients about this for a long time, that not too long from now, we're just going to blow past that very unpopular one-hour glucose test where you have to drink that gross sugary drink, wait an hour, get your blood checked. We can just wear one of these devices for a week or two and know exactly what the blood sugar is. Which device did you use and and what's it been like? Have you enjoyed it? It's a Freestyle Libre. Happened to be a freebie that one of my buddies who's a family practice doc had around his office. It is painless and, and easy to wear. And being the son of an engineer. I'm kind of a data nerd. And so it has been fun to follow my blood sugars. And uh, it's also been reassuring to see that they're not spiking very high at all. And my fastings and uh, glucose are all below 100 and, uh, 105 or even below 100. And I'm combining this with some changes in my diet where I'm starting to take in significantly more protein for a variety of reasons. But I am really kind of fascinated by this book, and I have bought about eight copies of it so far and given it to close family and friends, and I'm hearing that they're having the same response to it also that's kind of blowing their minds. Yeah, some really cool femtech or just tech solutions uh, ahead. And the theme of Outlive uh, reminded me a little bit of the theme from the top headline that you mentioned. We need to outlive some of these projections we're hearing about from scientists. What's, uh, What's the latest on the ozone? In its most recent report, a United Nations expert panel confirmed that thanks to the Montreal Protocol, which if you're old enough, you might remember, was enacted in 1987, that over 99% of the ozone-depleting chemicals that were in fairly common use back then have been banned, and the ozone layer in the atmosphere is healing, closing up. In addition, there was an amendment to the Montreal Protocol in 2016 to phase out some other chemicals called HFCs which are found in air conditioning and refrigerants that will also have a powerful effect in limiting the warming of our planet. So uh, it's not a completely straightforward story, but overall it seems like this is an example of governments getting together and doing something that is really working to help protect our health. This is one of my favorite stories of the year. And the news broke in January of this year, 2023. So we're kind of recapping some of the highlights. But basically, it's an example of where the science actually worked. People were exposed to data. By the way, they were exposed to data in 1985. That's when the first large report came out that there was this hole in the ozone layer, letting in tons of UV radiation, which can cause skin cancer, can kill plants and animals, bad, bad stuff. The Montreal Protocol was initiated in 1987, two years from here's scientists telling us there's a big, big problem to governments around the world saying, okay, here's our solution. We're going to cut back on those uh, people known as CFCs, uh, chlorofluorocarbons. I can't even pronounce it. But, you know, basically these things that were in Freon, I think was the big one people heard about, and things that were aerosolized like hairspray. Was hairspray a big part of your style guide in in the 1980s? (laughs) I will never tell. No, I never used hairspray, but we did have some pretty gnarly uh, hair gels and things like that. 
Yeah. So just, I mean, so great that it worked, you know, like the whole system worked. And as you mentioned, the 2016 update is important also because uh, get, get your ding bell ready. We had some regrettable substitution with getting rid of the CFCs. They're replaced by these HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, got that one pronounced better, which uh, are still used in refrigeration. And the HFCs might even be worse than the CFCs. So in terms of greenhouse effect, keeping the heat in, in this case, we've got to kind of look to mechanisms to phase those out. But overall, I, I just love the fact that it was successful, it worked, and it's all, in a, in a rare case nowadays, it's a projection heading in the right direction. Absolutely. And I also want to do a callback to one of our prior episodes because one of the marine animals that's sensitive to UV radiation is a category called phytoplankton. And if you remember James Stewart, who was our marine expert on episode eight, Baby Shark, told us that these sorts of tiny organisms make more than half of all the oxygen on Earth. So we are in doing something like the Montreal Protocol and actually having those policies carried out, we're not only protecting ourselves from things like melanoma, but we're also protecting the supply of oxygen on earth. And one of the recurring themes on this program and one of the things that fascinates, I know both of us about medicine, is how much connection there is in this fabric of life that we call nature that we are a part of. So it's just it's so interesting to, uh, to notice how uh, one action that does good things somewhere oftentimes has other benefits, maybe even bigger ones elsewhere. Yeah, there's, there's another side to the regrettable substitution, which is there are these positive externalities. A good deed in one spot spreads it much, much further. So uh, speaking of headlines that James Stewart and marine biologists uh, will likely approve of, California is upping its game for recycling and trying to get more plastics out of the dumps and then the waterways. Do you recycle these things? Like, do you, do you make trips to recycling centers with aluminum cans and get your five and 10 cents? Well, I, I'm embarrassed to toot my own horn, but yeah, I'm a very aggressive recycler. And in the city that I live in, Del Mar, we have multi-stream recycling, which means we don't have to separate paper from plastic, from cans to things like that. We can all put it in the same container, but at my home, uh, a good two-thirds, if not three-quarters of my trash every week is recyclable and goes that way. And I also keep I, I keep a collection of plastic bags down in the uh, in my garage, and once a year I go find a place where I can hopefully recycle those. Yeah, I'm a pretty aggressive recycler. It's not safe around here in my home if you don't recycle. Well, hang on to those wine bottles and, and the like and the mocktail containers because I, I wanted to pull up to get an exact word for word this new California law. Wine distilled spirits that are in a container that is a box, bladder, or pouch in a similar container will be included in this new recycling program. That immediately made me think of my college days when we did enjoy a bit of the fine Franzia boxed wine that had both a cardboard box and a plastic bladder inside. We could have saved so much money back then if that program had existed then. It looks like they really are trying to incentivize recycling plastic because the glass containers are roughly nickel and dime, literally based on size. But then you get to 25 cents category, and that is like the bag and box containers, the plastic pouches. It looks like this is a, a real effort to, you know, in perhaps a small way, reduce plastic waste. I love progressive California policies. They're not difficult to carry out for the most part, and uh, it feels good to be part of the solution to these big problems. 
It does. And I do want to mention that there's often a flip side to this people think of, which is they, thinking back myself to my college days, some wily investigative reporter on our college campus tracked where the recycle bins actually went and if they were sorted. And uh, I think in a familiar finding, they found that kind of all the stuff went to the same garbage and very few of it actually made it to recycling in the first place. So for people who are thinking that, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, like, does it really make a difference? There, uh, I, I looked at an interview with uh, the CEO of TerraCycle, uh, Tom Zaki, who's, who's one of the leaders in this field. And, you know, he does acknowledge that there is a lot of phenomenon like this, where the recycling does not always accomplish exactly as it's intended to. You know, granted, like maybe the waste bins aren't perfectly aligned to where, where we think they'll go. However, big picture, it is still worth it because one, it can encourage reuse, which might even be better than recycling in a lot of cases. And two, he points to studies that show that recycling really is a gateway drug in a good way. That if you, if you make the conscious effort to recycle, okay, maybe that isn't making the biggest difference in the world, uh, like Adam Aaron from season one told us about, or from uh, this season who told us about uh, what really makes a difference, what doesn't. But if you use recycling as a way to then reduce carbon emissions and uh, you know make things more sustainable in your household, then those things do start to add up in a real way. Very, very good point and very worthwhile to consider. Again, I, I, I do think that for so many reasons, moving down this path, imperfect though it may be, is a truly important thing for us to do. And it also makes us feel like we're more a, a part of our community and moving that community in a, in a healthy and safe direction. So uh, I, I agree. I think both of those points are, are very worthwhile. Well, speaking of safe directions, are you looking forward to diving headfirst into the Seine next time you find yourself in Paris? Well, this is really an amazing good news story. And the plan is for in this coming summer, in time for the Summer Olympics, which Paris is hosting, people will again be allowed to swim and, and bathe in these famed waters. Uh, which have already seen a resurgence in wildlife and fish populations. There's salmon swimming in the Seine already. The river's been closed to swimming since 1923 because of widespread industrial pollution. But the mayor of Paris, uh, Anne Hidalgo, has a big program to regreen and clean up the city and especially the river. And it's going to be safe enough to actually hold Olympic swim competitions this summer. And the last time that happened, was when Paris hosted the Summer Olympics in 1900, so quite a long time ago. There is one potential problem, and that is uh, the problem of runoff after rain. So they've really done a good job cleaning up the river, but if there happens to be a, a, bad, uh, a bad time rainfall event just before the swim competitions, that could cause the river to contaminate, at least briefly, and uh, cause them real trouble. So I guess we're going to have to cross our fingers when the Summer Olympics starts and wish them bold chance. Yeah. Well, speaking of positive externalities, this appears to be one of several from hosting the Olympics there in Paris. When we were traveling there for the International OB Society, the big focus was on bed bugs in the hotels and, and getting those cleared out of a lot of the venues in Paris. I, I have to admit, we, we did take a riverboat tour on the Seine. Nothing about that looked like I wanted to jump in the water and go swimming, but it would be fantastic if if it did uh, get get there. One of my favorite books that I've read in the past, I don't know, five years, it's called Soccernomics. So it's kind of like Freakonomics, but for soccer, football. And they analyzed uh, cities that host the, the World Cup. So not the Olympics, but the World Cup. 
and found that those cities don't actually make any money off of it. Like the amount they invest to build the new stadiums and do all the new infrastructure, they don't make money. But what they do gain, and I don't know how exactly you study this, but their their citizens are happier. So it's kind of like hosting a party. You know, you probably don't make money when you host a party, but maybe your house gets cleaner and you are happier when you have people over. Uh, hopefully that's what's happening in Paris. Yeah. And and if they are using this as an impetus to really help regreen and clean up the city, not just the river, like you say, positive externalities, really wonderful to see that and to see other cities take up this, this uh, same effort. Good luck to Paris. Well, lots of good news to share from top headlines of 2023. As we look ahead to 2024, many people may be considering a dry January, or at least cutting back during January. So we're really excited to share some insights uh, and and recipes from Dan Scott, a, a master mixologist in Los Angeles, who will be sharing some custom mocktail recipes just for you. Stay tuned. But first, looking for a little inspiration with the new year, we asked some of our guests for their personal resolutions. We got some great responses. First, here's Kristen Lyerly, an OBGYN physician and candidate for Congress in Wisconsin, who we met on season one, episode two on March 31st. I love New Year's because I love starting over, that fresh start, thinking about where we've been and where we're headed. So I'm so glad, Green Docs, that you asked about my New Year's resolution for 2024. There are a few, but the big one, the one that kind of underlies everything else is I want to listen more. I find myself talking a lot and being in situations where I feel like I need to say more and be a bigger part of the conversation. But sometimes I just need to stop talking and just really hear what others have to say. So that's my plan. I'm going to listen more. And Mary Marshall, a meteorologist in Washington, D.C., who we hosted on Season 1, Episode 5, on June 5th. I'm Mary Marshall, and for 2024, I hope that everyone can focus on finding their inner peace. I know, that sounds a little bit corny, but think about it. There are so many stressors in the world, and so putting a priority on our peace can really help us out and go a long way. Find a protected hour this year, one hour a day for yourself to do whatever you want to make you happy and at peace. Welcome back. So as you know, here at the Green Docs, we've solicited some outside help to uh, kind of elevate our mocktails and give us some more tested recipes rather than Bruce and I just mixing what we have in our fridge. Today, we're really excited to be joined by Dan Scott. He is the founder of two companies. One is called Fancy Free Liquor, a boutique bottle shop in Los Angeles, California. And he's also the founder of Whaling Club, a cocktail catering company. Dan, welcome to the Green Docs. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. Dan, we really appreciate you giving us some of your time. I know retail folks are extremely busy at this time of year, but I have to tell you, we have something in common, which uh, I didn't anticipate. Apparently, you're quite a big fan of West Wing, and we just finished talking about Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. We're both Aaron Sorkin fans. So what is it that bonded you to West Wing? I'm actually a graduate of Syracuse University which is Aaron Sorkin's alma mater. So he's um, he's fairly worshipped back at Syracuse, even, even to this day. I've just always sort of been a fan of his writing, 
he's just so smart and articulate. Uh, just a, just a huge fan. And then you know, just his voice on on sort of politics uh, just seems so kind of reasonable and and and, and thoughtful. So yeah, the West Wing is just it's 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 just special. Now, Dan, how did you get into founding these two companies? Can you, can you tell us a bit about your inspiration for those and maybe what makes each distinct? Prior to founding the Whaling Club, which is which is sort of the older of the two companies, I'd worked both in New York City and here in Los Angeles in various capacities of bars and restaurants, restaurant management, bartender, server, sort of all of the, the various roles. And I always kind of had an itch to do my own thing. And so I guess it was about 12 years ago or so, I kind of had this idea for for the Whaling Club um, just to really do something on my own. I didn't imagine that it would amount to much, but I started hosting these kind of intimate cocktail parties out of my apartment just for friends. And I sort of created a brand identity around it, a logo and a name. You know, one thing led to another uh, to the point where I was kind of in a position to sort of jump ship on my on my current role and and give this you know cocktail catering a try. So we've we've been at that for about a decade. There's just such a massive opportunity here in Southern California to do private events, and so we really leaned into the world of weddings um, and wanted to really elevate both bartending and cocktails really outside of the cocktail bar, bring that experience out into the hands of, of the people at, at various private events you know, throughout Southern California. And then about four years ago or so, you know, I, I, I live here in, in Burbank, which is, I guess, sort of a suburb of, of Los Angeles in the Valley. And I drove by this little liquor store that was locked up for years and you know, one thing led to another, and and I sort of bring a life back to a liquor store, a corner store that's been in Burbank for over fifty years, and and that's been been a lot of fun, sort of elevating that, bringing some new and exciting products to Burbank. I'm fascinated by the trends that are going on in the mocktail world. As Nate said, we've been experimenting a bit in this, and I know nothing about mixology. But it sounds like you've been in the business for long enough. You've been able to see the rise of this whole new section called mocktails. What What's going on there? Yeah. You know, I, I remember, gosh, I don't even know how long ago it was when, you know, these first kind of non-alcoholic spirits sort of kind of came into the world. I mean, there's always been, you know, non-alcoholic beers and wines that have had the alcohol removed and... uh you know, the sort of the joke is that there's always kind of an old expired old duels in the back of every low boy of every bar um, if you really needed something and you weren't drinking. But yeah, I think I think the first one I can sort of recall is Seedlip, which is, a, you know, a non-alcoholic distillate that kind of hit the market. And I, I think bartenders right away were pretty excited that there was some products starting to come to market that you could use to create complexity to cocktails where people weren't drinking. I think prior to that, you know, it was just sort of mixing a lot of kind of juices and house-made syrups and soda waters and things like that and trying to create, you know, something that 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 could replicate the flavor profile of a cocktail. But it was always sort of missing something. You know, if you sort of look at the breakdown of a cocktail in terms of you know how many ounces are are spirit? How many ounces are a sweetener? How many ounces are you know citrus or other modifiers? You know you, you easily can come to the conclusion that there's more alcohol in a cocktail than 
anything. And so if you're trying to sort of recreate the flavor profile of a cocktail, you know, without anything to replace the alcohol, you'll fall short 100% of the time. Once these non-alcoholic spirits started to come to market, I think it changed everything. It's been really exciting in the last five years or so, especially on the retail side of things. We're approached feels like almost daily by brands kind of entering the non-alcoholic category, you know, presenting us with with new products that they, you know, that they'd like us to stock on our shelves. So it's been it's been fun to kind of explore this whole new category. Speaking of shared history, my grandfather owned a corner liquor store in Covina called Top Hat Liquor. Uh, it's still there. Uh, he, you know, our family does not don't own it anymore. I never really got to get to be there when he was working there, but I imagine they had O'Doul's and that was probably about it. So quite <laughs> literally, the things available now are not your grandfather's mocktails. You've talked through quite a bit of the evolution of this. For people who are kind of just learning about it or maybe somebody just got a positive pregnancy test and now they're going to enter the world of mocktails, can you talk a bit about the landscape of different options? Looking on your website, I see quite a few different categories, at least, of syrups and mixers and seltzers and sodas. There's an incredibly wide, wide range of products that that you can explore. There are obviously, you know, non-alcoholic beers, which, you know, as we discussed, have sort of always been around. Uh, although, you know, there are a ton of craft breweries that are now producing non-alcoholic alternatives. There's a brewery out in Wisconsin called Untitled Art. And they're a pretty experimental brewery. They make a lot of really cool stuff, fruited sours, tons of IPA stouts. And um, one of the things that's really exciting about them is that they're really, ex- rather than sort of focus on one or two kind of core non-alcoholic products, they're they're really exploring. So, you, you know, you can find an Italian, non-alcoholic Italian Pilsner, a non-alcoholic uh, Mexican style lager, a non-alcoholic stout. So there's a ton of options in the craft beer world. One of the things that I find most exciting in the world of kind of non-alcoholic products is things that can be used in cocktails. And there's kind of two angles that that people are going for right now. One of them is, and, and, and there's a fairly well-known Australian brand called Liars. They're sort of going for this angle where they're sort of taking a product like gin, for instance, and they're kind of creating, they're sort of calling it a, a you know non-alcoholic you know, London dry spirit. Um, they're really going for the flavor profile, specifically of gin or of a bourbon or of a spiced rum to use that as sort of a direct alternative to, you know, an alcoholic spiced rum or an alcoholic bourbon. And that's one way to go about it. And then there's other companies out there that are just kind of creating these non-alcoholic spirits that have a complex flavor profile. They don't fall into any one particular category, but they just they add complexity in a really interesting way. So you, you wouldn't necessarily have one thing to compare them to, uh, but they could be used in a way that adds a lot of complexity to a cocktail. There's a there's a company here in Los Angeles called Amass. They primarily produce uh, gin and vodka. Um, they have a non-alcoholic distillate called Riverine, um, and it's just this really complex sort of grassy, green, botanical, non-alcoholic spirit that when mixed can be really, really exciting, really, really interesting in, in cocktails. Two questions with that. When we're talking about non-alcoholic beer and how that's really, that area has really opened up and then all these uh, spirits that that are seeking to 
more or less imitate gin or bourbon or some other recognizable flavor. I'm guessing I already know the answer to this, but how are they doing? Are, in either the beer category or the spirits category, are they able to match these flavor profiles to the point where if you didn't tell somebody, they might not know? Or are they always going to be different by some significant amount? You know, the category is still so young in so many ways. I think a lot of products are getting better and better. There are brands that are revising recipes. I think everybody's sort of still chasing how to replicate these products to be as close to sort of the originals as possible. I, I, I will say, personally, I've been I've been sober for a couple of years now, and I drink a lot of non-alcoholic beer. I've personally found it to be the most uh, in, enjoyable, um, the most accessible, and and really to answer your question, uh, the closest in flavor profile to, you know, for lack of a better term, the real thing. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of non-alcoholic beer. I was just out the other night with a buddy. I was at a dive bar in uh, in, in in West Hollywood and ordered a Heineken Zero, and it, and it was. It was great. It was great. So even some of the big players in the game um, are, are are introducing non-alcoholic options. I think Heineken Zero is only like five years old, so relatively new offering for even someone like that. I love a good stout. Is there one that you might recommend that fits in this category? You know, Guinness just came out with a uh, a zero-proof beer, and um, it's exceptional. It's soft and velvety and has really lovely texture. And, um, you know, if sharing a, a pint of Guinness with a, with a pal is something that, you know, you really appreciate, then I don't think you'll miss a beat with Guinness Zero. Hmm. You know, we've been hearing a lot about that Guinness Zero Proof option, and you're not the first person to endorse that. I think come St. Patrick's Day, we'll have to uh, give, give those a sample. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Well, Dan, th- thanks for sharing your own personal history there. And uh, one of the kind of the unexpected things about doing this mocktail sharing on the Green Docks has been all the different reasons people come to just either cut back or abstain from alcohol entirely. So whether it's supporting sobriety or avoiding it for, uh, say, pregnancy reasons, there there seems to be just a growth in in this industry. Do you see that on your side as as kind of many different audiences looking for zero proof options? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that really wasn't an option prior to all of these zero proof beverages hitting the market was an option for something to drink that feels celebratory, that doesn't contain alcohol. I think that was always sort of the missing piece of going out with friends. It always felt like, you know, if you were going to go to a bar, you ordered a drink. And if you weren't ordering a drink, you ordered a seltzer or you ordered a Diet Coke or you ordered something that felt, you know, otherwise pedestrian or, or, or every day, you weren't ordering something celebratory. And whether you're, you know, consuming alcohol or not consuming alcohol, there is something special about ordering a round of cocktails or ordering a round of beers. It feels appropriate to go to a dive bar with a buddy and sit down and share a pint, whether one of them has alcohol in it, the other one doesn't. It feels less appropriate to have one person have a pint and have the other person have a Diet Coke. It doesn't feel like it's the same experience, but regardless of the alcohol content, it feels like a very similar experience um, if you're both able to kind of share a beer or share a cocktail. And 
I think that there are a ton of people out there, whether it's a long-term decision, a short-term decision, or even just a daily decision of, you know, I really want to meet this friend for a drink, or I really want to invite a friend over to share a bottle of wine, but I just don't want to consume the alcohol tonight. I've got to get up early. I want to go for a run. I have an early meeting or a phone call. And so these non-alcoholic options are so special and so important in that way because you're still able to celebrate with others and share in that experience with others without the alcohol. Glad to hear that basically all options are available from from a dive bar where you probably wouldn't expect maybe a, a huge maybe array of options. Uh, all the way to like the ultimate celebration drinks at at things like weddings and other family occasions. Now you must cater some of these events with your whaling club. Are you seeing mocktails pop up as kind of like specialty drinks for these events? The way a lot of weddings, for example, I think have a signature drink. Are they having a signature mocktail also? We are seeing that uh, more and more on events. There's you know two two ways that I think a lot of people are looking at it. One is offering a mocktail, you know, on on the menu, something that, you know, is made without alcohol that, you know, their guests sort of feel safe calling for. The other option is just offering uh, versions to modify those existing cocktails as mocktails and sort of having some non-alcoholic spirits to add complexity, sort of like how we talked about earlier. You know, one thing about the catering that's great is that we make these non-alcoholic cocktail mixes essentially. So we we take all of the ingredients outside of the alcohol and we batch them up. You know, let's take a strawberry basil margarita as an example. We take, you know, strawberry, basil, agave, lime juice, we batch that up into essentially a house-made margarita mix that we can then mix with tequila on site to make margaritas to order. And that that allows us to uh, you know also manipulate those ingredients uh, as a mocktail or as an option for you know a, a kid who wants a sort of a strawberry limeade or a, you know a, a mocktail with a non-alcoholic spirit or you know doing the, the the full thing with the tequila. It sounds like there's a whole world opening up around mocktails that it's not just because I'm not drinking I might pick this because. It's actually a little bit more interesting than the drink that I normally would order with alcohol in it. Would you say that's true? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that's 100% true. I, I also think that, you know, you can kind of take those ingredients that defy category, you know, don't fall into sort of one of the main spirit categories and and use them to, you know, modify cocktails, like you said, to add new flavor profiles, whether that's as the base spirit or as, you know, a split base, which is kind of a bartending term where rather than taking, you know, let's say two ounces of gin in a cocktail, you might do a split base of an ounce of gin and an ounce of sherry, or in this case, an ounce of gin and an ounce of a mass riverine, which is a non-alcoholic spirit. You bring the ABV down by half, the alcohol by volume cut the drink and kind of make it a lower ABV cocktail while introducing a sort of a new flavor profile to it. There's a ton of stuff that can be done with these products. Well, I have to admit, when we started this experiment on the podcast, I didn't envision I'd be saying something like this, but I'm kind of thirsty for a mocktail. <laughs> I'm kind of ready for one. And we've got the perfect guy to talk us through those. Uh, thanks so much. So you're sharing some recipes with us that we're going to try here uh, in just a minute. And since we have dry January that we're entering and 
a lot of people, I think, for New Year's resolution reasons or health kick reasons, may be engaging in this, at least for January. You have a mocktail mix called Snow Day Mix. Can you tell us about that one? At Fancy Free Liquor, we have a line of non-alcoholic cocktail mixes that can be mixed with uh, either a spirit or a non-alcoholic spirit. And um, we have one sort of out for the holidays called the Snow Day. Um, the base of that mix is a house-made coconut cream with fresh lime juice, cinnamon, and some orgeat, uh, which is sort of a traditional almond syrup that's often called for in, uh, in tiki cocktails. It's sort of creamy and limey. It almost has kind of like a cinnamon, coconut, key lime pie flavor profile to it. It's, it's, it's really, really great. One question that keeps coming up every time we try these mocktails is, why does one thing get paired with another? Is it all trial and error? Yeah, I think that there are definitely flavor profiles, flavor combinations that feel like they are very successful together. I think that you know, there's a couple of ways you can sort of look at flavors. Um, one way is to look at flavors that complement one another, and another is to look at ones that contrast with one another. So, for instance, this Sandpiper cocktail, we've designed it to be a, a mezcal cocktail. Mezcal is a you know an agave spirit similar to tequila, although the the piñas, the cores of the agave, are typically smoked underground before they're pressed, which makes the juice and then ultimately the distillate have a sort of a citrusy kind of smoky flavor profile to it. So you kind of take this really bold smoky flavor profile and then and then just kind of cut it. What we like to do is is cut it with with mango and chili and fresh lime. Yeah, I think it creates a, a, a really lovely flavor profile. You know, a couple of things to keep in mind. One with these mixes are, you know, you you kind of can't go wrong because although we recommend, you know, two ounces of the mix and two ounces of your base spirit or non-alcoholic spirit, you can really use anything. That's sort of the beauty of these mixes that we've created. So whether or not you have a two ounce jigger, you just need some sort of measuring vessel to create these in equal parts. You know, another thing to keep in mind is, I guess, the surface area of your ice and how much you want to dilute the cocktail. So, you know, if you're using sort of a more traditional style of ice, you might want to shake the cocktail a little bit less aggressively than you would if you were sort of using or serving over a larger format ice where the water dilution is going to be less affected. All right, Dan. Well, I, I can't wait to try these. Uh, I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. I'm really looking forward to uh, to this mocktail. Looking over the flavor profiles, uh, they look quite interesting. I had never mixed uh, coconut and tequila before, so uh, I think I think the zero proof option of that will be will be perfect for kind of imaginary snow day. And where where can people find these ingredients if they you know kind of take an interest in this and want to experiment with dry January? You can go to fancyfreeliquor.com. Um, we've got all of our non-alcoholic cocktail mixes listed there. They're all available, obviously, at the store, and then we ship within California. And if not, you can always shoot us an email to hello at fancyfreeliquor.com, and we're happy to provide uh, any recipes, recommend any products, either containing alcohol or, or non-alcohol. Um, we'd love to help you on your journey. Dan, it's really great to have you join us. And I just want to acknowledge you for evolving. It sounds like you've gone yourself in a healthier direction and you've got your finger on the pulse of what's happening out in the rest of the world now as people gain more appreciation for these options. So congratulations to you and your business. And thanks for sharing your insight. You're probably going to hear from us again 
as we go further down this path. Think around St. Patrick's Day Perfect. with uh, this Guinness we've got to try. I love that idea. And I really, really appreciate you guys having me on and uh, allowed me to kind of share some of my thoughts on this. Yeah, it's been great. And now a New Year's resolution message from Jeannie Connery, the president of the International OBGYN Society and just an all-around environmental health champion. We met with her in season one, episode three on April 18th. Happy New Year. The Green Docs asked me to come up with a New Year message, a resolution, if you will. For the Green Docs, I would do anything. So here goes. And actually came up with three resolutions. The first um, is a reflection of how busy I've been for the last couple of years. I need to learn to speak French. I have a daughter. I've got two granddaughters who live in Paris, was taking French classes. But when the Fiegel presidency happened, I stopped my classes. I'm going to resume two French classes a week with the goal of really, really learning to speak French. My second resolution has to do with travel and reading, but really reading all the time. I am a voracious reader and read at least one book from Oprah Winfrey's book list every single month. My third resolution has to do, I shouldn't call it fulfillment, but just something creative and fun. I am not an artistic person by any stretch of the imagination, but my daughter enrolled me in a watercolor class in Paris a couple years ago. And again, the Vigo presidency took hold and I've not taken any, I haven't really done much watercolor. I do it when we go to Hawaii, but I'm going to pick up watercolors. I'm going to take a class or classes and continue to do watercolors. And I appreciate my Green Doc colleagues, Dr. Nate DiNicola and Dr. Bruce Bacar, for challenging me to do this and getting me to commit. Happy New Year to all of you. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Dan Scott. And I think essentially what it boils down to is that mocktails are moving in two different directions. You have those drinks that are getting better and better at really, I don't want to say imitating, but representing gin or scotch or any other alcoholic beverage. But the other direction to me in some ways is even more interesting because mocktails are now coming up with flavors and subtleties that aren't present even in the best of cocktails. This is a good thing to see because, of course, mocktails are healthier for all of us. So it's great to see the momentum in this space and the fact that this is really becoming not just something people can do if they have to, but becoming more part of my life. And I think lots of other people just because of all the interest around it. So how about some fast facts, Nate? Yes. For the episodes, fast fact number one, glass is 100% recyclable and can be recycled endlessly without loss in quality or purity. Compare that, remember, to plastic, which has hormone-disrupting chemicals that can increase children or developing fetuses' risk for brain uh, impairment, including things like ADHD and autism. And in women, can increase the risk for things like polycystic ovarian syndrome, PCOS, and even cancer. And these would be true even if the plastic label says BPA-free. And fast fact number two, phasing out HFCs as we work to have that ozone hole close as an important side benefit, maybe a really critical one, because those chemicals are powerful agents of climate change. And so to get rid of them will help decrease global warming by a half a degree Fahrenheit. And we have published our study in JAMA, which talked about how higher temperatures with climate change increase the risk of preterm birth and low birth weight, amongst other problems. And our study included over 32 million births in the U.S., just to be sure. Number three. 
The benefits of cutting back on alcohol include better sleep, more energy, more money, improved memory, and better immunity. Typically, cutting back would be less than 10 drinks per week or less than four drinks per day. That'd be a big day. And remember, there is no safe amount of alcohol in pregnancy. And as Dr. Ravi Gada reminded us in season one, Daddy Issues, for men who are trying to conceive, and especially if you're seeing a fertility specialist, cut it down to either none or no more than four drinks per week. And finally, fast fact number four, the average New Year's resolution lasts just over three months. No big surprise, this according to Forbes. Most common resolutions are in the arena of fitness, finance, and mental health. And interestingly, action-oriented goals are 25% more likely to succeed than those that are avoidance-oriented. So we've already shared some New Year's resolutions from previous guests, and we have a few more to share. Let's see if any of those are action-oriented. Here we have Dr. V. Wynn, a pediatrician who led the Heat and Human Health Summit at UCSD from Season 1, Episode 10 on August 25th. My New Year's resolution is to focus on decarbonization in my climate work, especially on school electrification, and I want to exercise more too for myself. And here is Dr. Alex Rivest, who is a neuroscientist and co-director of the movie Canary, who we heard from in episode 12 on September 17th. Hi, this is Alex Rivest, the director of the film Canary. Uh, and I have a New Year's resolution, which is to account for all the carbon I put into the atmosphere uh, in 2024. Airplanes, cars, uh, home gas heating, uh, to actually understand what my footprint is and so I can figure out a way to put it back underground. And uh, if it resonates with you, go for it too. It's, it's one way to try to understand our impact and, and to be able to make a difference in the future. I wish you all a happy new year and uh, see you in 2024. And here we have Noel Pugh and Santosh Pandapati, the leadership team of Ilovu Health, a femtech company uh, transforming prenatal care. They joined us in season one, episode nine on August 10th. Okay, well, Santosh, uh, the Green Docs have asked for our New Year's resolution. I have uh, several resolutions. One, personally, um, I intend to get physically more fit, more uh, time spent on self-care in terms of meditation, mindfulness, and personal development. In terms of career, I intend to work with you, Noel, to make Elovu the best damn startup there can be. Um, I intend for us to get thousands of moms on platform. I intend for us to make a difference across the United States and set the groundwork for a global transformation in how we give care to mothers. I also want to make sure that we're bringing our fellow clinicians along for this journey. What about you? We built a culture of transparency and kindness and healing where people love to work. Happy New Year, the Green Happy Dogs. New Year. Happy New Year. Here's to a wonderful 2024. Thank you. And don't forget, we have other New Year's resolutions from past guests listed on the website and the show notes. These include Lenicia Russ, the executive director of March for Moms, who's taking art classes in the new year, and Rhonda Carnegie, one of the leadership at TED Talks and founder of TED Women, who herself has some messages worth spreading in 2024. All right, Bruce, how about you? Have you made any news resolutions? Were you inspired by any of our guests? You know, I'm not really a big resolutions guy, but this year I am. There are a couple of things that I really want to do, and I love the beginning of the new year as a time to start fresh. 
One of them, uh, I think, was inspired by our conversation with Adam Aaron to reduce my own greenhouse gas output by at least 50% because we really need that kind of reduction urgently right now. And I'm going to primarily achieve that by taking fewer plane trips. I already live a pretty close to fossil fuel free life, but that's something I can do better. And the other thing is on a personal side, I'm going to be making my own healthy longevity a priority. I'm going to devote, and I've already started uh, significantly more time to exercise and altering my diet based on some of the new tech that the data that we got available, new blood tests, because I want to live a long time and I want to enjoy myself along the way. Well, for myself, uh, I, I'm similar. I usually don't do New Year's resolutions, uh, partially because I fall into that majority that don't make it past three months. But I've been inspired by a few things, uh, even doing this podcast this year. The first happened this episode, uh, when you mentioned you are one of the people who donates to Wikipedia. I never met anybody in life who actually did that. But you know what? I, I looked at the website during where this recording. It's 275 they're asking for. Yeah, I, I can do that. I can probably do that even more than once a year. And by the way, that's $2.75, not $275. And I bet you know lots of people that donate to Wikipedia. It's just not the sort of thing we talk about. You know, if nothing else, we'll hear more people <laughs> admit to it and maybe it'll <laughs> make the site even better. I don't know. But yeah, I think I, I, that's an action I can complete. And the second uh, related to keeping fossil fuels in the ground. That's, that's a really good message for the year. I have made it a goal to use my electric portion of my hybrid vehicle to the point where I don't need to gas up more than twice per month. We'll see how that goes. I also kind of just to mention, please send us your New Year's resolutions and tell us how it's going. You know, either you had good ideas for it or it's mid-January, late into February. Like, how are things going for you? My wife, Kendall, uh, has a unique approach to this that I think actually a lot of people do too, is uh, she picks a word for the year. It's like a theme for the year that you follow through all 12 months. So if you have those, please send those our way also. That's a great idea. Okay, so to wrap up, uh, how about those recipes Dan Scott recommended in the mocktail arena? I get to make the sandpiper, which is two ounces of alcohol-free mezcal, or in this case, alcohol-free tequila, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice, three quarters of an ounce of agave syrup, and a half an ounce of organic mango puree, which I just made myself by chopping up a mango and pureeing it. And it says to combine the ingredients in a glass, mound it with pebble ice, and garnish with Angostura bitters and a lime wheel. I don't have the bitters, but I've got everything else. But I am using traditional crushed ice. So I've got mine already. What, what do you have? Do you have any natural bitters that you can add? No. <laughs> no bitterness in your life? I've got no bitterness at all. It's a good way to start the new year. I've got their snow day. And I was uh, lucky enough to be able to get the pre-mixed batch from uh, Fancy Free. This was a mix of cinnamon, coconut, lime, and a word I had to look up, orgeat. Apparently it's French and I don't know, but it's apparently like, a, like an almond ingredient. So it was all pre-mixed. He said to put it over pebble ice, add equal parts tequila, which I've got the Monday zero proof mezcal and uh, top with some cinnamon. I'm very happy to say I actually even got pebble ice from a local beach burger shop called TK Burger, like the pride of Huntington and Newport Beach. I honestly think people go there sometimes for the ice alone. So I was able to order just an empty glass of ice. So we got the pebble ice. All right, let's give them a try. Cheers, Bruce. Look at this thing. It's beautiful. Looks like a real mocktail. How would you describe yours? What do you think? What stands out? A significant improvement. That's the biggest thing that stands out. 
I think it probably would work well with the actual tequila. In this case, it's a zero proof and it, it goes really well. Pebble Ice, if you can get it, is a nice touch. Yeah, I really enjoy this. How about yours? I feel the same way and I'm thinking back to Dan's comment about a drink being celebratory, being different than just a sort of a one-note Diet Coke or something like that. This has this kick of lime mixed in with the mango and it's being offset by the smoky flavor of the ritual alcohol-free tequila, which I think has a very much of a mezcal sort of a flavor. And so the combination of all of them, it just, you know, I, I would happily have this and it just, it feels like a drink I would have at a party or, or out at a bar or something like that. It's very sophisticated. It makes me feel a bit more sophisticated just, just drinking it. You look more sophisticated. Don't I though? <laughs> Well, cheers and happy dry January to you. Cheers. Check us out every Monday on the socials. We'll be sharing another mocktail, something for you to enjoy and look forward to, in addition to the mocktails that we're going to feature on all of our episodes. And our next episode will be out every other Thursday. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your listening content or stop by our website, GreenDocsPodcast.com, where you can check out the show notes, links for this episode, recipes for mocktails, and of course, send us your comments, submit questions, and have a great start to your new year. This episode of Green Docs was created by Bruce Picar and Nate Nicola and produced by Podcast 411, with special thanks to guest Dan Scott, founder of Fancy Free Liquor. Check out our website, GreenDocsPodcast.com, like, subscribe, tell your friends, share some mocktail recipes, and tune in every other Thursday for a new episode. Great way to start off with 2024. Happy New Year.